should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we do our clout chasing at the bottom of the barrel. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, who skeets so much they call him Billy Ocean. Benedict! (laughs) Have you ever been a regular somewhere? Ooh, uh... I get, I mean, not, not like a, not in the kind of way that's like, hey, I'll have my usual... Uh-huh. But, like, in a way that someone's, like, maybe, like, the server or host person is, like... Like, you want the number again. five again? Yeah. <laughs> no, not that, but but just, like, oh, hi, you know, like, as you get seated at a table or whatever, they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? Like, good to see you, whatever. Like, like I, oh, I don't you think anyone's again. ever known... Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone's... Ever, it's never been a cheers situation where everybody <laughs> knows my name. Where everyone knew your name, yeah. But... I, I think everyone, like, knew my British ass is, like, <laughs> that doesn't quite scan... <laughs> Um, but there was a Thai place around the corner from me that we'd go pretty often. We went there actually when you came to. Came oh, to that New place! York, yeah, so, that's a nice little um, place. Yeah, yeah, nice yeah it's gone now. Pandemic, uh, pandemic, pandemic. Yeah, it. I, I guess I get to. That um, was before the pandemic. Holy shit! Yeah. Was that the last time I came to visit in New York City? I think so. Yeah, I it might have been. I don't know. Re- I think there was one time after that. I think I came another time. After the pandemic started, if I remember correctly, but I don't know. I don't know if that's. I don't. I don't think you did. I, I, I came to you in DC. That's true. You came down to visit yeah. DC yeah, twice. Yeah, yeah. I think during the pandemic. So irresponsible yeah. of you. I know that you would know, do something like that. We were but, vaxxed uh, at the time. <laughs> we were vaxxed. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess like in a, it depends by what depends what you mean by regular. So, but kind of. Okay. Well, my, I mean, I. I'm not. I'm also like, I'm not a big like, go out drinking at a bar or pub kind of guy. Also, like, if I'm gonna sure. get drunk, I get drunk at home. Um, <laughs> In the saddest way possible, <laughs> with your sadness no, not, lamp right next to you. Yeah, exactly. Not even that. Just like I, I, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a drinker that has a local. Like, I'll go out mm-hmm. for drinks like wherever. Mm-hmm. Like, if like I'll meet friends somewhere. It's not like I'm like okay, I'm gonna go sit at the bar at this place and talk to the bartender that I know. Like, I'm just not that kind of person. Which is, I think, I feel you know, that, I would love I, to be I, that kind of person. I hardly ever drink. Like to be honest, like I I I know I come off as a guy that likes to have a nice IPA on a yeah, weeknight evening. You do actually. But, yeah, um, I would if if someone were like, "Hey, the, what's your favorite drink?" It's the beard. Yeah. Uh, but it. uh, I I don't. Tr- I probably have not had a drink since I got back uh from Christmas uh with my family, and before that, it had probably been months. Um, oh no, there was a work function that I that I drank at, but I just I only drink when other people are drinking. It's entirely a social thing. But when I was right out of uh, high school, when I was working as a mechanic way back when, uh, I lived in a spot in Sacramento on Fulton Avenue, right down from mm-hmm. uh, from this this spot called On the Y, which was where the okay. uh, the street split. So it was in the middle of where these two streets went past it. And I was literally three blocks away from it. And it was the shittiest shit dive bar on the planet. Like okay. Thursday night was metal night. And it was so, everyone who could not get 
anyone to pay them to play would come pay, play there for free with their shitty screamo metal band. Gotcha. And nobody fucking cared. We all went out back onto the patio and smoked. That's what we uh-huh. did. But that was the kind of place where I knew the bartenders' names. They all mm. knew my names. My regular crowd hung out there. And like when I walked in the door... Bartender popped a Bud Light on the counter for me because she knew oh, what I wanted. Look at you, looking <laughs> been all fucking lame. I was the worst, and that was look. The there's worst nothing wrong with Bud Light as America's beer. Like, it's all good. <laughs> it was the worst. It was nothing the wrong worst. with that. Anyways, Benedict, you you probably know, but uh, oh, some of the listeners deep, out there, deep, 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 they deep, may not deep, know exactly deep, what it is deep, that we do deep, here deep. on this program. <laughs> and to them, I would say that we go. I was waiting for you to do it again. <laughs> no, I refuse. Okay, do, keep me off again. Keep me, no, no, Some keep me off again. Say, I'll do it again. Let me do it. Let me do it. Okay, let me do it. Deep, deep, deep. To plumb the depths. I'm not letting you do it now. Over right wing thought. Deep, deep, deep. deep. By I'm just reviewing cut me a chapter <laughs> from a work of conservative nonfiction and in between taking a look at other examples of the right doing their best to make America hate again. Benedict, start us off this week. Do you have a hot take for us? I do, and it's literally like a heat take. Because it is fucking cold in New have York. You tur- have you turned the hairdryer <laughs> off? I have turned the hairdryer off. Yeah, the hairdryer is off. Um, it is really, really cold. It's maybe like 15 degrees. It's very, very cold. Um, I haven't got used to Fahrenheit yet. It's minus 10 in centigrade. So like, This that, is it, why my lifelong philosophy is live in a city where you can afford central heating and air. That's fine. It's just cold. Like It's just always cold when it's minus 10. <laughs> 10 outside like there's just no way of avoiding that um, i don't know it's gotten pretty close to zero here in st louis and i am nice and toasty well with my thermostat said that, that must be that must be nice for you with all your money but mm, yes, um, it's so nice <laughs> what i was gonna say is that by all my co- money do you mean my three hundred thousand in student loan debt yep, exactly that <laughs> uh that's an investment in your future and should be counted like a mortgage kevin that's like a mortgage the they they, yeah. they should count it that as very an asset. much like a mortgage i could have yeah. bought a house with that money yeah but yeah well that's that's why they should count degrees like did you see someone said that they were like people should count degrees like a house in terms of your like your value absolutely they have an equivalent cost yes yes absolutely anyway having said that um hot cocoa and baileys is the best drink for when it's cold outside and i will fight anyone that says otherwise oh oh that's all right that's it that's, that, that's my hot take. Is yeah, that what you're drinking yours? during this show? Are we going to uh, have another Benedict gets a little too tipsy during the record no, situation? Okay, okay, we've never had that. We've had Benedict got <laughs> fucking blackout drunk during the recording. <laughs> Um, we've I'll leave never it to had the listeners got, to go back and figure yeah. out which see, episode that was. See if you can guess which episode that happened on. I got real quiet after the first hour. Um, you get a prize if you can figure that one out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, Bailey's isn't alcoholic enough. It just changes the changes the flavor mm. of the cocoa a little bit mm. in like a nice oh, way. That reminds me, by the way, that I said I'm not a drinker, but I should say I drink every single day because <laughs> I am <laughs> I am thoroughly addicted to uh, a sleep aid, uh, over-the-counter, like, basic care sleep aid, which I thought, I so thought for a long time, was help, you know, was making me drowsy and helping me get to sleep. And then I just looked at the label and realized, oh, this is 10% alcohol. I'm just taking oh, really? a shot before I go to sleep every night. Nice. <laughs> Cute. Okay. Great. Really All great. Right. Um, so, no, my, my wife is going to make me one when she comes back from, uh, from, from getting COVID tested. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> she's, a, she's a nice lady. Um, what's, your, what's your hot take then? My hot take this week, Benedict, I win all the arguments. Mm. Um, I have never against, been defeated. 
Okay, I am, that's... I am forever the champion. No one will ever be able to, to prove that's me wrong on any not point. not true. You know what? <laughs> it sort of is, though. And, like, <laughs> look, this comes, again, from something that happened in my life and the fact mm. that I, I tend to get into a lot of arguments with right-wing mm. shitheads uh, who want to prove me wrong. And I okay, have yet to meet all, one who can pass muster in even, in even the slightest way. That's and that's fine. why usually I don't argue. I just resort to making fun of them and calling them names because it's not worth my time the uh-huh. majority of the time. But then when I do argue, I, I just, none of them can stop backing down and backing down and backing down. And it's not because I'm smarter than everyone. It's not at all. That's I seriously. It's because <laughs> for years now, I have been obsessed with them and how they think and why they think it. And more importantly... I am constantly obsessed with learning what bullshit undergirds their positions and why they're wrong mm. about it. I think I think anyone can, you know, like my my most recent ex when I was back in DC when I went uh, twice down to stay with her family uh, in uh, South Carolina. Um, her dad, her mom, huge Trump people. They could not. They kept trying. I don't know why they kept trying, her dad especially, to argue with me on politics, but he just didn't know the basic facts Mm. of existence. He just didn't understand. Like, I mean, this is around the time of the election, right? November, December 2020. And he just didn't know the basic facts surrounding the bullshit election conspiracies he believed. And I could pull them up on my phone, mostly because I had a lot of them pulled up for other reasons, arguing with people on Twitter and whatnot, and be like, look, here, this is what you were talking about. This is the reality. Here's the filing that I can pull up and show you, and you're wrong. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, which is why, like I said... They will have no acknowledgement that you won that argument. Yes, exactly. it literally does not matter To this day, he probably says the same exact nonsense that he did even when he lost those arguments to me. So what you're That's why I just make fun of them. And that's you why... You spent a huge amount of time wasting your time arguing with it. Right. And that's right. how I ended up calling my ex-girlfriend's dad a bitch. That's another story for a different day. <laughs> that's not... Um, great... <laughs> that was not, me. Not, not that a great was me one. after... It was, to be fair, I accidentally called him a bitch. I did not realize I was calling him a bitch as mm. I was calling him a bitch. Interesting. Um... um I would also say you've lost. It was at least also a because he was misgendering people, and that's why yeah, I, that I, I let that slip out. You've you've lost at least a handful of arguments against me. I would bullshit, say. bullshit. Name All one. Right. Let's, Name let's, the episode okay. and the timestamp. Okay. You can't because Kevin, you don't even listen to our. I show. don't listen to our show. <laughs> don't be ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I scroll re- back I, through our text history for like seven years and see yeah. see if way back in the beginning there was something also there. why would i do it when i can deputize the listeners to make a fool out of you for me <laughs> so i will i will encourage listeners to go back and how find arguments you. that i have won against kevin how dare you please, anyways please Benedict. tweet kevin and tell him when he's wrong and when i was right moving on a little bit rather than the bullshit we read benedict what should they be checking out what's on your bookshelf this week yeah i'm gonna recommend another cookbook actually uh, uh, I know I know you're not a huge cookbook guy. No, nope, um, I get all my recipes off the internet. Yeah, I think a lot of people do that, and I, I respect that as a graft. I just don't have the patience to differentiate between the... fucking New York Times behind the goddamn paywall, yeah. you assholes. Some of that shit looks good, your pictures look delicious, but I'm not going to pay! 
I'm not going to uh, pay to get recipes. I can, I can send you those recipes <laughs> unofficially. We'll, we'll work something out. We'll, we'll work we'll something, something out. Behind the scenes. Um, I, I can hand write them out for you and take a picture. <laughs> um, but so I basically, I don't have the patience for um, like differentiating between the like seven different versions of Coco Van that come up when you, uh-huh. uh, when yeah. you, so that's why I like cookbooks. Cause it's just like, here, make this. It looks good um and also like sometimes i don't know what i want to make do you know what i mean like you're not like i'm not like i'm gonna google something and find a recipe i'm like oh that looks interesting i've never made it before i'll try that so like things i haven't heard of or wouldn't try necessarily that's what i like cookbooks for so this one is called moro which is a um like north african influenced spanish cookbook by Ah. uh, sam two it's by sam and sam clark which i think is samuel and samantha clark okay um but that may be wrong don't quote me on that but it's just a it's a really nice like very influential early 2000s cookbook that influenced a lot of mediterranean chefs i think i think they have a restaurant in london so i would recommend that if anyone wants any recipes please reach out to me there's some great paella recipes in there some great great <laughs> you're gonna rice offer recipes to, you're gonna Listen, offer i will to i will <laughs> I will I will not send, send bootleg, bootleg anything. recipes to I our listeners. I will offer advice to our <laughs> listeners on how they might go about making uh You're meet a guy dishes. in a dark alley yeah, but, hey, exactly. man, hey man. Uh you you want Coco Vaughn, huh? Huh? You want souffle? You want souffles? <laughs> I got some right here. I got it right here. Also, uh French food sucks, so don't make French food. Oh um, go fuck yourself. French food is delicious. It's <laughs> no, butter it and carbs. It is, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. But I, I find it uninteresting because there's no spices in it really. Um yeah. Okay, what about you? What about what's your bookshelf? Me this week, Benedict. I am for the first time, I think, recommending a tabletop game. Uh, oh, okay. Sh- sh- again, can fit on a bookshelf and currently sits on my bookshelf. I should have brought yep, it. Yeah, I here have tabletop games recording. on my bookshelf. I should have brought that it in here before we started recording, but I didn't. Uh, I got recently Illuminati, the card game. Oh, fine, uh, okay. which is a notorious game uh, that conspiracy theorists, many of them, actually believe. Um, told the future because, for example, and I here's the thing: I got the second edition, which is not the original. Uh, the original edition by Steve Jackson Games, and it's still made by Steve Jackson Games, um, had these cards that, for example, one was like a terrorist attack, and it had uh, what people say is like a depiction of the twin towers and predicted 9/11 and shit like that, um, and all this other stuff. It also has a bunch of cards with like Bigfoot and other shit in it, because it's a fun, silly game, and, you know, crazy stuff happens. Um, but I got a copy of it recently, because I, I love uh, I love playing some games when I have people to play with. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to get some of my co-workers to come uh, hang out, play some games. I work yes. with some nerdy people, so uh, I, uh, you know, used to play some games back in the day, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm getting back into some tabletop gaming, and this one looks pretty fun, so um, check it out. Also, the artwork is just, it's just great. It's beautiful. Mm. It, there's some funny stuff in there. I love when there's just those little gags in games it's a whole lot of fun uh illuminati card game by steve jackson games check it out on to housekeeping this week benedict not you but the other people should rate and review us uh on itunes and on spotify and all the Mm. other places that allow that sort of thing out there i'm sure there are others that i just am not aware of and if you know about them tell me about it uh follow us on of course all of the social medias at nygbc pod on twitter you're gonna of course also um, like some of our great people have become a patron. And Bennett, we have a new patron this week, and this is someone I honestly thought was already a patron, but just mm. thought that maybe they were using a different name and I didn't know who it was. But Benedict this week, Brent Lee has finally joined us 
as a patron. And Brentley, we are so happy to have you along Welcome. in our Blue World Spooky World Order. Thank you so very much, Brentley. Um, do you know I, I'm looking at our reviews again, and we yes. uh, we have one one star review, and I'm kind mm-hmm. of offended that they didn't even bother to drag us. Like, really? I feel like if you're they gonna, they didn't even leave a comment. Do, it was just no. just a one star and yeah, no comment. Yeah, if you're gonna do a one star review, I feel like you've got to like. You've got you know, to at least I have be had like to report several pucks. comments in the past. You, oh, you know, really? I, I have had to report them because uh, as our show goes, occasionally we get people who just like they Googled something and they think that this is, you know, because it's book club and our, our yeah. name isn't particular. Someone got mad at us for dragging Von Mises the other day. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people come across us and think, oh, these people must be big fans of Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene or Lauren Not a big Bobert fan or, of Ludwig von Mises. Beck. And they start listening to a show and they realize very quickly that these people are the evil deep state mm. and uh, must leave angry comments full of swear words and um, sometimes racial slurs, which is always great. Yeah, so, honestly, uh, like that that happens more where people are like, wait, where we don't have a community. So like often on Facebook, people will be like, fuck you guys. And yeah, I'm like, well, yeah, that's that the happens. only comment we've had in months. So. And then there's all the emails. Oh, God, the emails are the best. People tell me how much I need to come to Jesus because they listened to five minutes of an episode and heard one of my bad jokes at the beginning. Mm. Uh, but anyways, Benedict, some updates this week. Of course, our first patron-only episode of the month is now available. Uh, we're doing two this month, like we said, because in December we just screwed up our scheduling and weren't able to do one. So, first one is up. It is the penultimate chapter of our review of None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen and Larry Abraham. Pretty fun, I have mm-hmm. to think. I have to tend to think that one was. Last one's coming up. We're going to get it up soon. Uh, So, and also we're working on some other stuff to have some, some fun patron stuff going on over there. We have some ideas. We're going to be, you know, throwing some other stuff out in the future. Also another update, Benedict. Mm -hmm. I mentioned on that patron only bonus episode uh, that we would have to get into the 10 districts thing, which was mentioned in the book uh, by Gary Allen in reference to Richard Nixon and following his 1971 state of the union address. I thought at the time that that was a reference to the 10 FEMA districts. Mm. I thought it was a FEMA district conspiracy drop that Gary Mm. Allen was leaving us in that. As it turns out, after the show, I went to look into it, and FEMA did not exist in 1971. I think it came out about in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. Interesting. I think what it actually was was maybe a precursor to the FEMA camp conspiracy theory, which is what I referenced and what I think we're probably going to have to talk about at some point. But I think it was a different version of like an EPA conspiracy theory about how the EPA has 10 districts in the United States. But I'm not able to nail it down quite so much. But I'm very interested in that, and I'm going to look into that as well. Okay. Yeah, it seems fun. But also... Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Also, Benedict, we have one more addition to our Spooky New World order this week. From Twitter, Mark E. Mark, with an E, just an E mm. in the middle, not not a Y. Mark E. Mark okay, on Twitter nice, nice. shared about the show, and you are now inducted into our Blue World Spooky World Order. 
And as I say every week, if you want to join our Spooky New World Order, of course, anyone can. You don't have to become a patron. All you have to do is tweet about or post about the show on social media or wherever you want and send me a screenshot to let us know, and I'll, I'll induct you every week if you do it every week. It doesn't matter. You can leave us a five-star review wherever you can and drop me a screenshot of that. You'll be inducted. You can, of course, become a patron, as so many people have done, and they'll be inducted into the Spooky World mm-hmm. New World Order. Blah. Or just, you know, get my attention with something that I find interesting, and I'll, I'll induct you if you're, if you're fun enough. But this week, Benedict, with all that out of the way, we continue our book review of God and Man, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William Frank Buckley Jr., the man I envision whenever I hear the word prolapsed. Benedict, Mm. what do we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read the second half of chapter four, in which I have to do a huge mea culpa and say I'm sorry for saying his point started to make sense last (laughs) week. Because he literally has gone, you know what I said at the start of this chapter? Forget that. Yep. Forget all of that. It really Never does. mind. It really does. Also, you know what is something I just right here at the beginning I have to bring up because it stuck out to me so much when I was reading this chapter is this chapter completely uh, destroys the last chapter that we're going to be get into and basically his entire thrust that the alumni mm-hmm. have a responsibility or the alumni have the ability to influence uh, the the college to do what they want to yeah. inculcate these values yeah. that he wants because. As he gets into for a substantial portion of the second half of the chapter, really a lot. He a lot. views the college as a business, and the customers are the ones who have the right to decide what the business does. And in any version of that analogy, the students are the customers, not the alumni. The alumni are past yeah. customers. So it doesn't make sense. I don't know what he's trying to get at with that. It conflicts entirely with his view. No. It, it makes no sense. And also, like, it's just a really uninteresting pivot. Because where we ended last week was, like, we were almost, almost thinking about things on a conceptual level. Almost. Where it's, like, does the best argument always win? Mm-hmm. And we had, like, a, a little discussion about, like, Nazis winning in Germany and that being a democratic move. And, like, I was hoping we would get into, <laughs> like, and this is majoritarian institutions versus elite control versus whatever. Nope. We didn't. We got straight back to an angry letter to President yep. Seymour, basically, oh, which is what this this mostly is. It really is. It's never um, going to be anything other than that. And yeah. somehow he manages to start the second half of the chapter with probably the most pretentious sentence of this book so far, which is, quote, Let us trace the thinking that underlies the selection of a president of a private university and some of the steps involved in that process. Go Actually, let's not. <laughs> Actually, absolutely, let's not. Go fuck yourself with that stupid bullshit. By the way, I, I forgot to say, but this subsection, uh, section five, is titled, Does Yale Observe Academic Freedom, in scare quotes, in Selecting an Administration? And, and he knows it doesn't. No. Um, he, he, okay, I, I think, as an editor, mm-hmm. myself, yes. and a writer, I Trim think it down. I, could, I, I could condense this. One paragraph. What is you it? You need one paragraph for well, this. Yeah, it's one of those longer paragraphs, but it's one paragraph. So this book, we're on page 150 now. I reckon I could do what he has done in 150 pages in 50 pages Mm -hmm. more effectively. Absolutely, 100 percent. And I have seen your writing, 100 (laughs) (laughs) percent. But so his thrust here at the beginning of this section, and right, we've talked about this a lot. If you didn't listen to the last week's uh, or the two weeks ago's episode, basically all he's saying is 
they don't really believe in academic freedom because they're already on my side. They're just not on my side enough. So really, they should just go full-on fascist, and I'd be perfectly happy yeah. with that. That's, that's yep. really what he's going for. But he describes now, again, and I think we've talked about this already, the process for selecting the president of the university, which I... I think we had... We maybe had it was the board members university or something. Yeah. yeah, it was the board members. Who gives like, a exactly. fuck? Or like how they select the chairman of the board from... A, it's Yeah, absolutely. The only thing interesting for me about this section is the three people who actually are on like the, the selection committee or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's the right Reverend Henry, Henry K. Sherrill who was the uh, bishop of the Episcopal Church of America, and then mm-hmm. Wilmarth S. Lewis, uh, who he describes as wit, scholar, and bibliophile par excellence, which is great, and Irving S. Olds, who was a board member of U.S. Steel, also a partner of White & Case, one of the largest law firms in the world. But the again, it's not all those people on that list who interest me. It is Wilmarth S. Lewis who interests uh-huh. me on that list. Wilmarth S. Seems Lewis... Fun if you don't know, uh, created the Lewis Walpole Library, uh, which is, I believe, at Yale University. He is Mm -hmm. the world's largest and probably only person to be completely obsessed with collecting every single work of Lewis Walpole, who was an 18th century British writer that I'd never heard of before, but this dude was obsessed. He was obsessed with Lewis Walpole. And also... A pretty funny and charming guy I could find uh, from some of the... His first first description is as a wit, so that doesn't surprise me. Like, I found his uh, New York Times obituary, which, like, described his obsession with collecting all these books, and it describes him, you know, in the way that any obituary ever does, right? Uh, But also, the quote that he puts in here... It's funny. It is. It's a very funny (laughs) quote. He has this, this footnote about something he says, and I'll just read it. It's, quote... While still in search for a president to succeed Charles Seymour, Mr. Lewis recited the requisite qualifications. He must be a leader, not too far to the right, not too far to the left, and of course not too much in the middle. He must be a magnificent speaker and a great writer. He must be a good public relations man and an experienced fundraiser. He must be a man of iron health and stamina, a young man, but also mature and full of wisdom. He must be married to a paragon, a combination of Queen Victoria, Florence Nightingale, and the best-dressed woman of the year. He must be a man of the world, and yet he must also have spiritual qualities, a great administrator who can delegate authority. He must be a Yale man and a great scholar, also a social philosopher, who has at his fingertips a solution to all world problems, from birth control to Formosa. Added Mr. Lewis, I don't doubt you have realized that there is only one who has most of these qualifications, but is God a Yale man? And that's just, that's charming. That is so it's a, charming. It's a nice, it's a, it's a, it's a well-paced joke. It is. It absolutely is it's because a, yeah. it, it strings you along. You're, you're chuckling through the beginning part. And then that's a, it's just a decent punchline. And back in 1940, you know, that joke hadn't been done a thousand times yet. Or yeah, and or, whatever but is. also then Buckley ruins the joke. Yes, he does, <laughs> by once again proving that the extremely religious are completely incapable of humor. Where he writes after that thing I just read, quote, An impious friend remarked to me that this would have been impossible. God couldn't have graduated from Yale. His moral code is far too corny. Which again, that friend's joke is decent. That's a <laughs> decent fine. one-liner. It's, it's fine. But, yeah, but, but Buckley's mad at his friend having a yeah. sense of humor calling yeah. him impious yeah. go fuck yourself just leave it me. as the, uh, the, uh, the Lewis quote the Lewis quote is good and funny 
Yeah, it was just I I just I I don't get I don't get how you can be mad at those people. Those no. are just those just seem like decent people I'd love to sit around and have a chat with. I don't understand yeah. it. But so he goes on once again here and he's talking as we've gone over a thousand times with different groups and professors and board members and all this stuff about what are the qualifications yeah. that this person is I supposed to I think we can skip have. a lot of this honestly. We're like, going to skip it, a lot of yeah, this honestly. Cool, <laughs> but cool, basically cool. he's starting off here and he's going, well, you know, the the ch- uh, president of of Yale is he's uh, he has certain ideas and uh, the one we've been talking about this whole time and the one he's I can never tell whether he likes this guy or he's angry at this guy, President Seymour, because he seems to go back and forth about he says the right things, but he's not doing the right stuff. Well, whatever. I think I think he likes I think he likes him in the sense, but in the sense like he's a good president, but he hasn't exerted his authority enough. Right. And also, like he says somewhere in the chapter, he's like most people here, most Yale students hail for hear from President Seymour precisely twice, which is yep. when they matriculate and when they graduate. Whereas the professors are actual influences on them. So the president, but that that's the thing. He's basically like, hey, the president doesn't matter, but this is why we need a president <laughs> that will do exactly what I want. It's, it doesn't make we need a president with a fascist iron fist that's what he's really seeking yeah exactly but so he gets again into that argument about academic freedom Mm. and whether it's academic freedom to demand that the president uphold certain values or enforce i would say certain Mm. values that buckley wants the president of the university to enforce and he says about that quote Now comes the question that the advocate of laissez-faire education ought to ask. What difference does it make? What what are the values of the president? To go further, is it not a violation of the spirit of academic freedom even to inquire into the values of a candidate, assuming him to be a man of high moral purpose and integrity? And I only read that to set off that we're going to be now, much more than we did in the first half of this chapter, getting into the idea that he's going to be, you know, addressing here of academic freedom and why it doesn't fucking matter to Buckley. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, that's that's the second half of this chapter. He's really just going to say, eh, fuck it, don't care. Just yep. make them all learn my laissez-faire capitalist bullshit that I'm, you know, falsely ascribing here as individualism and against this boogeyman of socialism that's really just Keynesian economics. And mm-hmm. that that's what the rest of this chapter is. I just have to point that out because it's it's annoying. Yeah, no, so, I agree. Again, you know, he says, does... Should we force someone to believe these things? Blah, blah, blah. And I will point out, again, we're going to skip the majority of this section here because it's so fucking boring. But Mm -hmm. what I realized at this point is that this subsection is the perfect example of faulty conservative logic chains that rely on layered invalid assumptions. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Because he starts off here and, you know, in this second half of the subsection, he starts putting out his assumptions and he says, now if... I'm just. I'm not going to read you any of what he actually wrote here. I'm going to read you all of the leading in clauses going into all of his paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Now, if surely not, well, then it must be. If the corporation believes that, then the corporation must. We can assume then. We can assume that. For example, it's just. Mm-hmm. all that bullshit fucking and all he's doing here he's starting from a premise of well does the corporation insist that the president should or should the corporation uh insist that the president uphold certain values and then he goes on this bullshit chain he pulls out an example from seymour's address which again presidential addresses from a university president are just fucking blather they don't mean anything when have they ever meant anything they, they are that's true but also can i tell you that I, for once, 
did some research into what the ellipsis did you? was. Yeah. Ooh, I'm so I happy found with you. The tell ellipsis. me, tell me what I you know. learned. Okay, so here it is. It says, so it says, I call on all members of the faculty as members of a thinking body freely to recognize the tremendous validity and power of the teachings of Christ. And I thought, to, and then ellipsis. I swear, then, I think we've gotten that exact quote before. Maybe, maybe, or something similar. And then he uses that of like, a, oh, he loves the teachings of Christ. Then how can we influence? But there was, I, I thought, first of all, that's weird because notably it does not talk anything about the divinity of Christ. So mm-hmm. he says the teachings of Christ, which is an Ooh, important distinction to make. That's I an thought. interesting distinction you picked it, up it, on. It is, yeah. Um, and also, first of all, my first reaction to this was most universities started as religious institutions because that's mm-hmm. the people that had the time to go and study because they weren't breaking their backs in the Not fields or in the factories. Not to mention a shitload of money to put yeah. up a bunch of buildings and stuff. Exactly, yeah. precisely. So anyway, the, the, the ellipsis of that quote, and let me remind you of how it leads in. Recognize the tremendous. I've never been more proud of you than at this moment. Recognize the tremendous validity and power of the teachings of Christ in our struggle against selfish materialism is what he cut out from that sentence. So that doesn't make sense to me. Why would he cut that out? Mm, Interesting. That seems like exactly what Buckley would. (laughs) Oh wait a minute. Let's say fair capital. Yeah, exactly. exactly So funnily enough. Well, I mean, uh, look, there's a thousand ways to argue around that because, again, every right-wing Christian fundamentalist will have a different definition exactly of that, what materialism means in their, depending on what particular argument they're in at the moment, No, I just thought it was particularly interesting that he cut that line. Because also, like, that, um, it doesn't necessarily detract from his point to leave it in and and he 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 also has he's left more out than that which which is like and and it's not like he's trying to save page space no exactly um but he he also cut more out than that before dipping back in where he did like seymour does say and like that's why i think christianity is important and blah and like should be a basis of how we teach so he actively cut out some stuff that supported his point so that he could cut out the selfish materialism <laughs> thing, which I love. That's fantastic. And then I, I got uh, a look, real endorphin rush from doing yeah, that. Research. Right. Do you see why I love doing that? Do you yeah. see why I love it? Yeah. So good. It's praise so good. Me, everyone. Absolutely. <laughs> praise me. But he then, and this, look, I, I was seeing parallels so much to what we've been reading in None Dare Call It Conspiracy at this point, when he starts going after nitpicking about the grammatical choices of the president in that speech, where he says, what did Seymour mean when he said, I call on all members of the faculty? And let me just say, I'm not going to read anything past that because I don't give a fuck about this stupid argument about what exactly he meant when he said call. Why did he choose the word call? I just want to point out that this nitpicking about particular grammar, the fact that right-wing far-right fascists and conspiracy theorists and all these people always do this, where Mm -hmm. they care much more. They think that their analysis of this particular choice of someone's language is so important when I guarantee you that person took half a second to choose that word when they were writing the speech because anyone who's ever written something knows that nobody cares about your speech that much. Unless you're the the literal president. Every professor I ever had that taught Shakespeare was fucking wrong. He didn't care that much about particular word choice. Uh, He was writing shit with a bunch of inside jokes in it, yes. But every single word in particular, he didn't care that much about. Sometimes he just picked a word. Sometimes a word is just a word. Sometimes a word is just a word. Sometimes a cigar is just a big black dick. Anyways... (laughs) We're skipping We're skipping the rest of that. We're going to section six, uh, mm-hmm. which is the goals of Yale. And he makes a decent point here in saying, oh, 
that phrase is meaningless. Yeah. Uh, the phrases that they use, things like educational ideals, uh, all this stuff is is worthless puffery. That it's just platitudes, and that's that's fine. That's a good point. Anyone who has ever read any institutional literature or institutional brochures or statements put out by universities or hell anything governments police departments anything it's all just platitudes mm-hmm. it's meaningless language fine but yeah. then he tries to derive something from that meaningless language yeah I and mean, it's like the the everything is pr theory of the world isn't it which well everything is everything is not pr but in everything particular is kind of pr <laughs> I think what he's quoting, if I remember correctly, I didn't highlight it, so it might take me a minute to find it, but I think what he's quoting is like either a report from a certain year, you know, something that gets sent out to the alumni, or a brochure, or something like that, and the phrase he's hanging on is, in behalf of the public welfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's just puffery. It's just a platitude. Mm-hmm. And he's so, so, so close to realizing that 90% of institutional language is just empty platitudes he's mm-hmm. so close to it but then he spends pages trying to put meaning into all of that just really fucking annoying to me but so he goes on about how seymour again he's still worried about seymour himself even though he's supposedly retiring with this section but seymour he has his ideas about what's good and bad and uh, you know he's he's talked about the public welfare what does that mean it must mean to Buckley, again, chain of false inferences, that, oh, what's good, what's for the public welfare must be what Seymour thinks personally about mm-hmm. what's good and bad. And we know Seymour, he said he wouldn't hire communists, so he's against communism. All this stuff we've gone over, it's a bunch of retreads. But there was one interesting tidbit in here that I hung on because I needed something. I needed something to dig my teeth into. And that is this sentence, which begins, quote, or this paragraph, rather. How does the faculty cooperate in this? For example, a Yale professor of anthropology, George P. Murdoch, speaking at a panel discussion at the 37th annual meeting of the American Social Hygiene Association on February 1st, 1950, expressed graphically and at some length the opinion that ethical and religious sanctions against premarital premarital sexual intercourse were nothing but a censorious insistence on an unrealistic and outworn code. And so, at that point, I went, wait a minute. American social hygiene organization sounds like an incredibly dystopian idea. And I went to look into this organization and found that it is fascinating. Fucking fascinating. Fuck fuck Buckley for a minute. Let's talk about the American Social Hygiene Association. So there was a whole social hygiene movement throughout the progressive era. And much of it, as you would be probably not surprised, was, you know... Uh, to, to denigrate prostitution. That's that's mm-hmm. mainly what it was about. It was about being mean to prostitutes. And they did a bunch of really weird and, and stuff. But as time went on, like, they sort of hung around for a little while. And they got really interested in, like, handing out condoms. And warning people about uh, venereal diseases and all this sorts of stuff. So there's a mix of good and bad there. And, of course, with it being the 1920s when this stuff kicked off, there's obviously some eugenics-type folks involved in this sort of movement. But the more interesting thing I found, and the thing that I really fucking loved, was at Virginia Commonwealth University, on their website, they have this social welfare history project, which is a, you know, big archive of all this stuff from this era, and they have a series of posters from the American Social Hygiene Association, the organization that that professor was giving an address to, that he was talking about. And I looked at, and these are, like, 
you know how I have a thing for old documents and weird, you know. I do know that, yeah. Right-wing conservative-ish type stuff. This isn't exactly in that area because it's just sort of like everyone was weird this way back then. But I find this stuff so interesting. A bunch of posters from 1919. And these are their Keeping Fit posters. And let me just read to you a couple of them. The Sex Impulse and Achievement. The sex instinct in a boy or man makes him want to act, dare, possess, strive. Mm. When controlled and directed, it gives energy, endurance, and fitness. Okay. Men who fail to develop self-control sometimes yield to sex temptation, indulge in sexual intercourse with immoral girls, and become infected with venereal, parenthetical, sex disease. The chief venereal diseases are syphilis, which in parenthetical is called pox, and Ah, gonorrhea. In parenthetical, clap. Mm, the pox and the clap. Great band the box name. And the, the pox and the clap. And Great there's just a name. series of these posters. Like there's some that are just like paintings of girls looking at birds. And it like the caption underneath it is like, the oh, girl the may become an, girls. this girl may become an invalid for life if she marries a man who has had gonorrhea not entirely cured. Mm. <laughs> it's just sure. so fucking weird. It is and a lot weird. of it's like, old-timey sexism, obviously, yeah. right? Stuff about what the women are supposed to do and the men are supposed to do. There's one that I loved, which is just a portrait of Teddy Roosevelt. Uh-huh. And it says, Sickly and frail when a boy, Roosevelt, by faithful training, achieved the vigor of manhood. That's mm-hmm. all it says. That's all the poster says. I mean, that's... Do, do you know about Roosevelt doing that? That is true. Yeah, like, yeah, was, I, I do yeah. know that that's true. But, like, oh, okay. Still a strange thing to put on a poster. And then there's a bunch of them that are just like, exercise your body by doing useful work. And there's a picture of a young man with a shovel. And it says, chopping wood, gardening, mowing lawn, shoveling snow are a few good home exercises. And like, there's other stuff, right? Uh, bathe Things about bathing. There's one about constipation that sure. says to drink water freely on arising. Eat laxative foods such as fruits and vegetables. Is that arising sexually? Or I agree. Like, hey, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if they'd want you talking about that. And then, Benedict, there was Got one. Got to drink a lot of water one. to deal with the change in blood pressure. <laughs> like The last one I'll bring up is called Keep Your Mind Occupied with Good Books. And mm. there's just a picture of someone sitting in Which a Which we have really taken to heart. Well, but here's some of the books. They actually list a bunch of books on it. Here's oh, man, books. is this our future books list? Oh, hell no. Actually, there's some of these are actually, you know, good books. Uh, Treasure Island by Robert sure, Louis Stevenson. Fine. Tom Sawyer. Uh, the Virginian by Owen Wister. Okay. The Crisis by Winston Churchill. Ooh. We might end up doing that someday. And then one that was weird, The Making of an American by Jakob Rees. Mm. But then I remembered this is actually a progressive organization, and progressive organizations were incredibly regressively conservative back then yeah. on a lot of social issues. Yeah. Uh, but but Jakob Rees, like, he was a big social reformer. He um, he put out the photo book, How the Other Half Lives, about New York mm, City yeah, back yeah, in yeah. the early 1900s. But look, I just, I loved those posters so much. If you want to check that out, uh, you can go to Virginia Commonwealth University or just search, you know, Social Welfare History Project. I thought those were so cool. They were really, really cool. Because there's another one um, that was uh, up, that was uh, uh, by the American Social Health Association from World War II, which was a fist. And it Mm. says, smash the prostitution racket. And then prostitution spreads venereal disease. 
So there's some really fucking cool stuff in there. I, I, just, uh, I think <clears throat> we're maybe wasting words on, on a visual medium here on the podcast. So. <laughs> I don't care. I enjoyed it so much. Okay. All right. But so he's mad put, about put this professor. Put a link in the show notes, maybe. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. He's mad about this professor who went and talked to an organization and said that uh, we're, you know, what we, uh, everyone basically now agrees on, which is that insisting on uh, not having sex before marriage is not helping things abstinence mm-hmm. doesn't work i mean we yep. just he was right in 1950 and and buckley is upset about that and he's upset obviously because it conflicts with the moral code he believes in which is rigid and unchanging um so <laughs> fine fine i guess whatever you're mad about that but he continues on he's still mad about seymour he's still just talking about seymour and what seymour supposedly believes in buckley's mind and why doesn't seymour stop all these people from doing things that i don't like why is he not forcing them to do x y or z when he should be exercising this fascistic power i really wish was the case it's also like this whole thing is a very like if you squint argument like Mm -hmm. i guess and then i guess that inference and then i get like then when you remember that all of his assumptions about what is socialism and what is this individualism yeah fucking straw each each relies on way too many assumptions it's like okay snowball of bullshit it is the snowball (laughs) of bullshit but it's a it's like um have you seen you've seen the big short i presume yeah, so it's like the way they explain those mortgages, the mortgage-backed securities. With, yeah, with, with uh, incredibly attractive uh, half-naked uh, women in bathrooms, yeah. yes. No, but yeah, I don't that, know why I'm blanking on her name right Mar- now. Margot Robbie. Yeah, Margot Robbie, um, yeah. But, the, but it's that. It's like each of these is packaged as like a stellar, well-fortified yeah, argument. I read this entire on... book, and I did not see one photograph of Margot Robbie. That's fine. You're you. interrupting my great reference. But... <laughs> um, it's so e- each of these is packaged as like a triple A class argument, but it's yeah. made up of so many like triple B <laughs> level inferences. This is basically the level. Buckley Buckley's argument levels is the the bones of the twenty <laughs> two thousand the early two thousands financial crisis. That's the level we're at here. Benedict, round of fucking applause. Are you proud of me? Yeah. So <laughs> proud of you. I am so proud of you for that right now. God damn. Thank you. Continuing on to subsection 7, which mm. is titled, Some Objections to Value Inculcation. In which he doesn't really object. He's like, ah, no. <laughs> That's weird. He sort of almost pretends to address some other people who might have objections like a, to it. Yeah, exactly. I think it's like, a, oh, this is what you're going to say, but I have a counter argument for all your... I think that's what it's supposed to be, but yeah. it's not... He doesn't really, like, he doesn't really do that. Because once again, he's back to a speech given by President Seymour, which yeah, he is angry he is. at. Why would he be? What Seymour said in this... I forget when this particular speech was delivered. I think it was a, a final address. A back, he calls it a early, major early part 50s. of his final yeah, baccalaureate yeah. address. So I guess his, yeah, yeah. his final address as president. And he said apparently during that quote, Nothing is more certain than that such a policy would produce the most arid sort of scholasticism. Referring to an, a, a situation in which they were enforcing, you know, value inculcation from the top. Yeah. And at this point, I was pretty sure that Buckley was just going to get mad that anyone dared to criticize scholasticism, given its mm-hmm. connection to historical Catholic teaching, yep. just as a, a word, you know, how yep. that is defined. Uh, and he almost does. He yeah, sort of is like, well, what's wrong with teaching these old ideas in a very entrenched and unchanging manner? What, mm-hmm. what, 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 you're, you're mad that we're teaching the same things and not bend? I'll, I'll change. I'll bend. 
I'll bend when I'm when things are proved. I mean, I won't break, etc. Yeah, but I'll pretend that I'll change if new evidence is presented to well, me. Well, we, we we then get onto your favorite page where oh, he, God he, damn sa- it. he he says uh, he says I I literally have never been presented with evidence that changed my mind about anything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I'm so happy to change my mind as soon as you pre- present yes! me with uh, compelling evidence to the contrary. And he's like, that has never happened in my 25 years on this earth. I'm like, <laughs> oh, God. that And that line, that line that you're referencing is, it was guffaw laughter levels of I, holy I shit. Wrote, I wrote the word, ha-ha. <laughs> <Next>. <laughs> because what he goes through here, just to encapsulate the few pages we're, we're skipping over here, is he goes through and he talks about, ah, you know, well, he must not mean that we're actually in scholasticism. He must mean that one day we might accidentally drift into scholasticism if we do these sorts of things. And through a sort of piece like, by change, piecemeal change. Yeah. Right, and he said, well, we, you know, everyone who complains about scholasticism and again, I'm, it's his version that he's talking about here, not actual scholasticism. But basically, it means uncha- willing, unwillingness to change and teaching the mm-hmm. same old things. Well, they all claim that we would still be teaching, you know, Copernicus and divine right of kings and fundamentalism instead of Galileo and republicanism. And basically, he just has a will not uh to that. That's that's basically all it is. Is just well, no, no. Okay, fine, Buckley. But then. Then he continues on, and this is where we get to what I just fucking... Well, there's two things on this page that are amazing. First is the utter fucking elitism of this Mm. paragraph, which is, quote, For if we cannot rely on the elite among our citizenry, the beneficiaries of higher education, to accommodate newly perceived truth and to adjust their thinking and acts correspondingly, there is little to be said for conferring on the people at large the reins of our destiny. Every fucking Republican who has this book on their list of must-reads, you have to go fuck yourselves now. You have to go fuck yourself in the face right now because you cannot pretend to be against fucking elitism. You're just bad at elitism. You just think that elites are people who know less and that knowing less is virtue. That's that's all you are. That's all you fucking are. Mm -hmm. But then he gets to, again, fucking amazing paragraph, quote, President Seymour's most frequently quoted statement is, quote, We shall see the truth and endure the consequences. Unimaginable though the advent of such a truth is, I too should be willing to face the consequences of new experience that, for example, rendered individualism unfeasible. But this hasn't yet happened. <laughs> Written by a 25-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I keep having to remember he was fucking yeah, 25. He was, young, he was young. I mean, yeah, he was. How he was goddamn sure of yourself? How god? And he never, he never did. He never did encounter that information that would have supposedly changed his mind. He just kept mm-hmm. being that fucking sure of himself. It's it's amazing to me. The God, that's so amazing. That's so fucking amazing. But yeah, skipping forward a little bit. This is just again. It's pre- I can't if I counted every time President Seymour was written on the page. I you know I I'd, I'd have to start drinking like I say I mm-hmm. don't. Uh, but uh, he's just mad about that. He has more printouts, more more copy of words from his baccalaureate address. And I just don't give a shit. I just really don't give a shit. Yeah, and I mean, says, the, the thesis of this chapter is basically majoritarianism is stupid and we should all be elites and, and inculcate from above. That's yeah. what we should do. Yeah. And he's sort That's, of now arguing again in favor of inculcating those values and saying, well, all these people in, in the section of the chapter where he's talking about arguments against inculcation of values. Right. And he said, all these people's complaints, they're just lying. 
Um, and even though my hardline Catholic beliefs have changed many times over time, as not you know religious scholars have proven them wrong, but as science has proven these things wrong, mm-hmm. uh, I still think that we should teach this hardline Catholic fascism that I am definitely in favor of because I'm a mm-hmm. hardline Catholic fascist. And then he I says, love just, Francisco Franco. <laughs> yes, he does. One fun little line, which is quote: "But our discussion must center around Seymour's intimations that value inculcation would breed unthinking, unreasoning, credulous disciples." I do not see why this should be the case and to that i do and its name is madison cawthorn that's mm-hmm. why it should be the case because well that's what- i mean it, so it, it's also just a different way of approaching teaching because he's like oh well, we'd still teach them how to think but like you wouldn't that's the you point wouldn't. like either no, you're and- doing value inculcation or you're not and that's my point is that yeah. madison cawthorn and the modern republican right the republican youth movement is a result of value inculcation mm-hmm. that is what you get People who are incapable of actually engaging in arguments or synthesizing information because they have a rigidity of thought that is inflexible and not able to actually understand. They're only able to parrot slogans. And here's the thing. Universities that do value inculcation already exist. They're just bad universities. Right. You know, all all the... Patrick Henry College, right? Or even like any, any religiously affiliated university teaches their values when they teach or like even i'm sure you know there are i'm sure there are other universities that do the same thing that aren't religiously affiliated you know there there are some known progressive universities and generally like i think they're probably worse universities than the ones yeah. that don't do value inculcation what's that like, one that the conservatives had bu- had a bugaboo for a couple years ago green uh, green something I don't remember what the name of it is. Uh, they, they get mad about. Is it Baylor? They get mad about Baylor from time to time. Eh, of course, there's a couple of California, Baylor, but no, California there's, there's ones like they green, get mad There's about. a small liberal arts college called Green something that does some weird weirdo lefty stuff from time to time yeah. that I think even most, like, most most of us on the left are like, okay, maybe you're going a little far there. Well, I just, I, yeah, I think that's the thing. Like the value inculcation is fine if you want to do it. I just think it makes it a worse university. Absolutely, personally. like. And, but and I, I no, say it nobody's, goes beyond. Nobody's stopping anyone from doing that. Forget like, that university. is a thing that exists. Beyond just university, what I'm saying is the Republican youth, they are a, not just of, because so many of them didn't go to college, right? They are a result and they no, are... No judgment on that, by the way. <laughs> Some of them. They are a result of that value inculcation process, which is not just through teachers. It is through every element of society that they encounter. It is through their social media. It is through the YouTube videos they watch, the the radio they listen to, the TV they watch, everything. It is all about value inculcation. It is not about presenting of information, allowing people to actually think about things. It is about value inculcation, and that is Mm -hmm. it. And that's how you end up with them. But, you know, and then we get a, uh, well, teach both sides bullshit argument in here. He's mad that, uh, you know, uh, people are saying you should teach both sides, but they don't actually because those professors I falsely claimed were a bunch of atheists and socialists. Nobody's teaching the other side during their classes. Mm -hmm. So I guess that uh, that's not real i it's just dumb it's just i'm so done i'm so done with this bad argument yeah, i really got mad right. about this point because i again i was just like I, you're supposed to be the dude you're supposed to be the deep thinker of the conservatives and it's the same level of disappointment i had during ben shapiro's book right we're like you're supposed to be better than this i was promised that you would be better than this and this is really just fucking lazy bullshit mm-hmm. it really is yeah i think i i, I mean I listen to a lot of Know Your Enemy, as I have told you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I think they did a good they, or they, they did some good stuff on Buckley where they, like, they haven't really dug into any of his own work they've talked about his influence um and th- they were like they were talking about like why did Buckley never do like a big like the Buckley book you know like mm-hmm. a big like seminal work in the way that some of the others did and it basically because like he realized he wasn't good enough at that type of writing like he was good at the quick reactive take and like getting his opinion out there and like a quick op like turning around a quick op-ed he's but a he wasn't writer. a deep he's in- just yeah, a which is writer. it's a different thing to being a book writer or like it, th- they don't always overlap like he was one of the original conservative hot take writers and i think that's a good way of thinking about buckley in that i don't think any of his thinking is deep enough like i don't think he ever really wrestles with ideas in the way that you need to when you're writing a full-length book. Yeah, that's pro. I mean, we, we've seen him sort of, I mean, just admit off the top that he's not going to do that, that he's not willing to mm-hmm. do that when he just says, I'm not going to argue about whether this yep. individualism is the best or not, right? I, I do think he was a, a, a great spotter of talent, though. I mean, you look at some of those early National Review columnists that went on to do, like, mm, the ones that didn't white, do all, all the racism. All those white supremacists. No, but, like, Joan, Joan, Didion, Joan Didion and Gary Wills and, like, sure. people like that that, like, actually were good writers. And, sure, you know. sure. But, uh, you know, he's now saying uh, that, uh, you know, he, he, he's arguing against the people who would say that these communist ideas should be taught and that they should be analyzed. And he's saying, well, they shouldn't be analyzed or discussed. They should be deflated. Mm. So he's only willing to allow them to be taught in a classroom if they're explicitly being context. attacked. Yeah. If these, you know, communism, socialism, anything to the left of fucking Von Mises is is being taught it this must is, be attacked. this is actually quite informative of the current critical race theory panic oh very much yeah that kept coming up for me as i was reading this too yeah. is how much of this is so similar it's and, rinse and repeat it's absolutely rinse well and repeat. you know what to be fair it's not exactly on one level it is because again the the part that goes back to academic freedom as we're going to get in the next subsection where he admits he's not in favor of it that part relates a bunch the part mm-hmm. about wanting, you know, X to be taught, but it must be attacked, not so much because that's not what the CRT. Yeah, they don't even want it to be about. taught. <laughs> yeah, they just they just want to erase that history. And right, um, I read a piece the other day, I think, in the Nation about how they're taking mainly books written by black authors about the black experience that have nothing to do with CRT in any way yeah, and removing them from libraries. Um, Olivia Butler. That's right. being removed from, from libraries, which has nothing to do with anything. Right. And Toni Morrison, like... God damn, it's just because, you know, it's it's a very thinly papered over explicit racism that's going on, and people have found a way to characterize it that not everyone realizes immediately is that racism. So they've, yep. they've just found a thin, thin veneer to cover over it and pretend very they're doing something veneer. else. But we get to subsection 8 of the chapter, which I believe is the last one, if I'm not incorrect, mm-hmm. yes. No, you're right. And it is titled, The Hoax of Academic Freedom. And here, he gets into a bunch of bullshit structural arguments about the fact that professors, half their time they're teaching and half their time they're researching, supposedly, and there's a split between those. And I guess, you, according to Buckley, you shouldn't interfere with their freedom when it comes to their personal research, but you should interfere when it comes to what they're teaching what in a classroom. Teaching. Should we talk about his hypothetical? I think that's probably the best way to, to go over. So bad, it's a, though. It's a, it's, a, but it is. But I think it's the, you know, 
before tying ourselves in knots trying to talk about what his argument is, let's just go to his hypothetical and sure. Talk I will say before we go to the hypothetical, this is where he gets into his the university is a capitalist enterprise and mm-hmm. every you know it's a and economics and uh, the the university must bow to the sovereignty of the consumer as he terms it. It's the argument me? that conservatives get mad about nowadays when mm-hmm. you do when you talk about big tech when they're like yeah, well when they're Twitter a private decides, company oh, you can't scream the n-word on our platform yeah exactly right. yeah. that kind of stuff so he has his hypothetical here which he says let us examine the situation of mr john smith a socialist professor of economics at yale and survey his fate under my proposed plan First of all, let us bar him from teaching because he's First invocating all, before value. anything else. <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, we started off hot here. We've started off hot here. So, A, uh, just to remind everyone once again, when he says socialist professor of economics, he just means someone Keynesian. teaching Keynesian economics. Just so dumb. It's so fucking dumb. But now he says, you know, we barred him from teaching. He hasn't had any of his freedoms violated. There's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. So I don't, I don't see what the problem is that he's, he's going on with here. And then he's skipping down a little ways, says, quote, But suppose you go on teaching and you advance not your own pro-socialist values, but are free pro-enterprise conclusions. And this is like a hypothetical someone is telling Smith that they can do this. You are well aware, of course, can I, what can these are. Can I just are. pause you for a second and, yes. and say why this is a further, like an even worse example? Mm-hmm. They say when they fire him, mm-hmm. they have a hypothetical con- conversation. And he says... Look, Smith, you unquestionably know economics, and there's much you can teach these students. I don't believe in the values you foster, and neither do the governors of Yale. Why have you picked economics for this one? That's the literally yeah. the one where your values come from your understanding of the subject. Yes. Pick a different subject. <laughs> where do you think his pro-socialism views come from, if not the economic that, understanding that he has? That is a the... weird thing I had not thought about as I was reading through this chapter, is the idea that they just that they, they, they he has separated. The idea of yeah. values... And information, and yeah. I think if I'm the values about, the derive right, from the information, the right that you does have. that a lot. They tend to separate yeah. and think of the two as separate because that's the only way that their screeching about professors being evil for teaching leftism works, right? Yeah. Because if the reality is, like you said, that beliefs th- flow from knowledge and information, which is the right why the college graduates uh, skew left because the more information and knowledge you have, the more you realize how all this conservative bullshit is wrong. It's not actually that professors are brainwashing people, but that's, that's a split right there. I had not mm-hmm. thought about thoroughly before, but yeah. I think you're, I think you're completely right on that. Oh, thank you. But again, in Would this you say of- that I, I won that <laughs> argument. Yes. No, no, no. We were agreeing. Uh-huh. We had an agreement. Oh wait, that is just a word. Uh, but, uh, so he continues, this is the, the false, you know, someone is telling John Smith while he's, before he's being uh, fired. You are well aware, of course, what these are and what is the intellectual justification of them, referring to the values they want inculcated. This way, we can retain you. What about it? So he's proposing... In my head, I read this in a very like, hey, what's going on with the New York <laughs> Times today? Or, hey, well, how about you teach them values that we like? What the about 1930s it? 1930s news voice? Yeah. yeah, yeah, 100%. But so, obviously, what he's proposing here is this hypothetical that, well, the socialist professor can still teach, they just have to lie about what they believe and inculcate values they don't believe in yeah or even not yeah 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 so you know again personal conscious issues conscience issues aside and he sort of acknowledges that many people would have personal conscience issues with trying to do something like that (laughs) and then he goes to a weird jag about the civil service in the uk and how Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with his example above because all these people in the uk they're instituting socialism 
and mm-hmm. uh, they're just supposed to be civil servants who go about their day and just write up paperwork and do all that stuff. Great. Okay. Weird. And then yeah, weird... I, I, I think he's he's arguing for cognitive dissonance, which, sure. Fine. Fine. But uh, remember that this is um, under the government of probably, I mean, he's probably writing this with Clement Attlee in mind, who yeah. was the first proper socialist prime minister of the uk and instituted like the national health service mm-hmm. and all you know all the big socialist reforms came through at lee and essentially what he's saying is it, it actually holds up as an argument today because like the the civil service basically disagrees a lot of them with with the cons- current conservative government yeah um but you know you still have to do the work but again it's the opposite argument that conservatives right. make in the sense that they say oh the deep state is stopping you from like stopping the the trump white house from achieving their agenda or whatever but like no actually there is a cognitive dissonance and most of these people do just go about their jobs and do their jobs well because right. like that's the or, job they want to do on the other hand what happened in the beginning of the trump administration a shitload Everyone of resigned people because they didn't have yeah fucking resigned because they objected yeah. to these this fucking shitty conservative regime and that was part of why they were the, the trump regime was so incompetent uh particularly the first couple of years to, yeah. the other part of why they were so incompetent is they are a bunch of know-nothings who thought that mm-hmm. they could just put political appointees in place and have things happen the way they wanted and don't know how anything works yep. but he basically after writing this two pages about this hypothetical says uh I don't really believe the hypothetical I just wrote. Yeah. He says, quote, Nevertheless, I should be opposed to this alternatives being given to Professor Smith. I should be opposed because I believe that even though value inculcation is just a part of education, a major portion of which has to do with the relaying of knowledge, method, and so forth, it is such an important part that it must be approached with the greatest sensitivity and delicacy and with keen and genuine enthusiasm. And... I mean, at this point, well, I, then, so but but what he's saying there is like I wouldn't even give him the option. I just fire him and get someone who really believes it. Right. And at this it's, point, I it's had not flashbacks. like I wouldn't impinge on his freedom. It's like I would get someone who really believes this shit. Yeah, absolutely. Because you must you must feel the capitalism. Yeah, you must exactly. feel the capitalism. Right. This is the point where yeah, I had flashbacks yes. to uh, Dinesh D'Souza's uh, documentary we watched, <laughs> where the Nazi youth for some reason, ran up multiple flights of stairs and we watched that multiple times to go yell at a professor and drag him out of the room. Yeah, uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes. Which, yeah. to be fair, Dinesh must be kicking himself for putting that in the movie, given that it's basically their policy platform now. <laughs> like, yep. Oh, man, oh, why I did I ever I, portray I, that as a bad I don't, thing? I don't think he cares. I, I truly do no. not think he cares. He got his pardon. He got his bullshit fucking money from doing those. He doesn't give a shit about anything. But after all this, he says, you know, if we just fire this guy, he hasn't suffered any. There's no freedom lost. So let's yep. just fire all the commies. The his... market has been free. Basically, fact, his resolution of this chapter, and I will now, as I always do, read the final eh, two-ish paragraphs of this chapter, which are, quote, now, if the governors of Yale determined to maintain a full or part-time research center for scholars for whose teaching there were no consumers, I should find this a reasonable decision. I should insist, on the other hand, that separate books be maintained by the Yale Research Center so that a contributor to Yale should be given the clear option of subsidizing the teaching part of the university or the independent research section. It is possible that the trustees would refuse the university's faculty to some researchers for a number of reasons, but the merits of each case should be given ad hoc attention. This is just someone coming up with an overly complicated bullshit yeah. way to make a thing work that's never going to happen 
Yep. This, this is, yeah, it doesn't matter. Final paragraph, quote. One thing is clear. It is time that honest and discerning scholars cease to manipulate the term academic freedom for their own ends, and in such fashion as to deny the rights of individuals. For in the last analysis, academic freedom must mean the freedom of men and women to supervise the educational activities and aims of the schools they oversee and support. End of chapter four. It feels like chapter 20 of God yeah, it's, Man Yeah, well, it's because we keep dividing them up. Well, I think, so uh, I should say at this point, I think we have one, one more, more episode. episode on this yeah, book. I, I, I think so, because chapter five, the problem of the alumnus, is five, sure. four or five pages long. And then but, we can talk quickly about the appendices. Well, we have to talk about all the appendices, because yeah. there's some there's some batshittery in the appendices, right? Mm-hmm. There's breakdowns of religion and sociology and some more stuff about the books, philosophy and religion there's a, an appendix on, and then... There's the appendix, which is just his undelivered speech that he spent pages complaining oh, about yeah. for Yale Alumni Day in 1950, which I'm going to have to read in its entirety. It's, oh, good God, it's amazing. We're going to have to read that whole thing. Great. But we're so close to the end of this, and Benedict, we have not seen the spark of brilliance that I was told no. we were going to find. We're, we're no, no. nothing but disappointed. Um, and, right, we've never found anything good, I think, in most of the book, we've, we've found things that are entertaining. We've never found anything that's truly, you know, like, oh, these guys were actually, you know, putting forward some interesting stuff. We've, we've never really run into that. There are points where I agree, like, I agree on that point, etc. But this has just been an utter disappointment, and I will once again say that I do not believe anyone who recommends this book has ever actually read it. Very no. much so. I do not think that most of the people who wrote the forewords for this book had ever actually read this book. No, I, I think, I, to be fair to him, I think Michael Knowles read it. Well, he has no life and is an utter empty shell of a man. Yeah, sure. Who just almost cried when I made fun of him. No, but he, he got the bar. argument. He got the argument. Sure. Like, he, he, he understood the thrust. He understood, but then, if you go look at him on his fucking program today with fucking Ted Cruz, he's not agreeing with Buckley. He proclaims how great Buckley is, how masterful this argument is, how true it is, and then he goes and says the opposite because he knows it's mm. unacceptable to actually say the truth that they believe out loud that they don't mm. believe in academic freedom. He's just like everybody else. Just like all yeah. of them. But Benedict, that's it for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you can go for as little as $2 an episode, that's only $4 a month. For patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early releases of our episodes, and more. And as always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons. Brent Lee, David Garrido, Dave Barwick, Charles Trulier, Dodd Snow. I'm trying the inflections. I'm trying some new inflections here. Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Ellie Bartlett, Lisa, Tarn Somerville Fletcher, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky's Got Fairly, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taro Tacanon, Skeptical Seventh, and Balls Watterson, and George Soros. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, remember, cool kids don't talk to the cops. Goodbye.
The Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.